Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Future of Internal Communication podcast. And as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Kat Barnard and Dominic Walters. Um, And today we're in for Series 5, Episode 3. And today we're going to be talking about communicating in culturally complex environments. I think that's certainly something that in the field of internal communication we're all experiencing right now. And we're thrilled for our our guest today is uh, Dr. Domna Lazadu who is a culture and communication expert who specializes in developing intercultural competence in global leaders, diverse teams and multicultural workplaces. Domna has a background in internal communication management and has worked for clients such as Microsoft, Airbus, RWE, Pfizer and AstraZeneca. Domna also has a PhD from Cranfield School of Management in intercultural communication and culture in multinational companies. And is also a trainer for us at the IOIC and part of our master's uh, teaching team. So is an absolute expert on the theory of, of culture and does a lot for us in this area. So I'm really thrilled that Domna is joining us this morning to talk to us about this culturally complex time that we're in um, when we think about the future of internal communication. So Domna, welcome. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And so just to kick us off, just tell us a little bit about your career. And it's such a fascinating topic. And so how did you become interested um, in, in this field of study, if you like? Um, thanks, Jen. Uh, I, oh, where, how far back to go to? Well, I'll, I'll go back to Greece. I, I originally come from Greece, where I grew up and, and studied there before I came to the UK. I started my professional career after completing my studies in the UK, uh, and I soon realized that culture was quite an interesting um, context in the way I was working with others. So the dynamics of of working with people and and sort of creating relationships, communicating effectively. Um, It took me some time, however, and it it took me um, a few years when I started working internationally to start questioning the relationship between organizational culture, national culture, professional cultures, and the way we communicate and sort of working effectively together. I eventually got so frustrated with the kind when I, when I became a, an international consultant um, in, inter, in internal communication, working with organizations around um, culture change programs, um, giving people the same old advice on how to do values communication and all of those things, completely ignoring the complexity and the differences of national culture. I got so frustrated with the the naivety of some of the stuff that we were doing as consultants. Uh, And I realized, I decided then I would go out and do a PhD and try to understand the interaction of all these different elements in more depth. Um, Initially, I thought just to become a better practitioner, really. Um, (laughs) I didn't know what I was getting myself into. It It took me years to actually complete that PhD. But in the process, I challenged a lot of the things I thought I knew and understood about culture and organizational culture and communication. And um, um, I I changed a lot of my thinking, a lot of the way I was doing things as a practitioner. And then I became a kind of an academic and practitioner, a hybrid. So I started working with some of my, my colleagues at Warwick University on looking at those aspects of 
intercultural communication in, in a business context and communication practice. Um, and I've been developing sort of those different ideas and tools together with that team since then. So I'm, I now bring some of that academic insight into my practice, but it has developed quite a lot since that initial kind of frustration that I had. God, I, did I even answer your question? I don't know. <laughs> oh, you did, Donna, you did. And it's and, it, and it, just having your story and, and, and that frustration and, and it's that piece around the international and the inter multinational aspect and that frustration and, and, and the way you dedicated that academic and that hybrid. I think it's just a, a fascinating bank of knowledge for us to perhaps tap into, isn't it? Yeah, it's all very complex. It's, there are no easy answers, is the kind of, you know. Well, we're, we're, hopefully today we're just going to chat about the challenges. We're not here necessarily for you to have all the answers. Good. <laughs> and I think it's, God, what a fascinating topic. Because when I'm listening to you speaking, I'm thinking about my own career. And I started out in the 1990s working in um, across Europe, um, one country after another, to... Um, help build mobile phone networks and my background my educational background I've got a degree in modern languages so I speak French and Italian and, and what I think I observed during that seven eight nine years of, of traveling around across Europe was how infrequently the people that were seconded into a country to build a network how infrequently people bothered to try and learn any any element of the language. And so for me, there's a kind of hand in glove fit between your propensity to try and understand a foreign language and your propensity to try and understand a foreign culture. And it's almost as if I my sense still is that for, for almost too long now, English has been um observed as the dominant business language of the world therefore everybody ought to speak English and and therefore our cultural norms and practices also prevail and and I experienced in my own life that's just profoundly not true because if you're culturally deaf to another country um or another society or another you know, business unit or whatever. If you're if you're deaf to their ways of doing and being, then then your job will only ever be half done. I think. I you know, it just seems just. It's, I guess as a linguist, I see this massive gap in perhaps ways that lots of other people don't. But I I don't know whether any of that even makes sense. But language and culture are quite closely um aligned are they not yes my background too is actually in linguistics you know before i i became a communications professional and you're absolutely right uh that there is a very very close relationship between the language we speak and our cultural influences um in fact i mean um linguists see um language as a cultural artifact as a product of a particular culture. This is not quite the same as saying your, your language determines the way you think, but there is, there is an element of that, that you know, the kinds of metaphors we develop, the language, the terms we use to describe things, 
inevitably say, shape the, the frames that we have when we talk about a particular thing, when we look at a particular thing, when we understand a particular thing. And those are the, the frames we reach for when we try to understand somebody else's behavior, for example. So, so if we don't share the cultural frames and the linguistic frames, then we can completely misunderstand somebody else when they're trying to communicate. Well, I, I, I'm going to be really contentious and, and I'm going to stick my neck out there. My sense is, you know, uh, as, as um, a language graduate and 30 years plus work experience, my overarching sense of the issue of language and culture is that there's an archetypal approach for within any any um, people that whose mother tongue is English, let's say, that it's not my job to understand you, it's your job to understand me. And I think that carries all kinds of difficulties and complexities and frictions. And, you know, if you're willing to step over that hurdle and tr seek to understand your miles and away in advance of your competitors let's say but but when you entrench in that unwillingness to understand because you your perception of self is that you're in a dominant position it's a dominant language it's dominant culture why should I that is a recipe for disaster in my view yeah, well, I to, to be honest, I don't think it's a, a particular behavior that only English native speakers <laughs> yeah, exhibit. I think it is something that you will see in a lot of people who, I would say, don't show um, cultural competence. Or what we, um, what my colleagues and I have developed this concept that we call global fitness. And I think... Uh, uh, Clearly, everybody agrees who looks at um, this idea of what makes you know, effective intercultural communication, that one of the key things is awareness of your own cultural influences and your own perspective, but also awareness of the other. And being able to reach out and wanting to reach out and to understand and to some extent to lean towards each other not necessarily to change your preferred communication style or the way you do things or what is important to you from a values perspective, but to try to understand nevertheless and to try to be flexible. And I think that goes without saying. So it's not, I, I don't think it's contentious at all. Mm. Oh, and so I was just going to say, just following on from that, obviously, you know, I kind of see the world through my own lens and I have my thoughts about why modern organizations are more culturally diverse um, than, I don't know, 20, 25 years ago. But what's your sense of that, Domna? How have you seen organizations become more culturally diverse and how does that manifest? Well, I mean, there is a, obviously, a, there's an obvious answer to this, which has to do with globalization. So over the, the last, what, 30, 40 decades, uh, years, three, four decades, um, more and more organizations have started operating across borders. So as a result of that, you've got more people from different geographies, with different languages, from different ethnic backgrounds, sort of working together. So there is that obvious aspects of diversity, of complexity that links to globalization. Um, 
I think interestingly, with um, the pandemic in the last couple of years, you had to, to some extent you have a little bit of a retraction with, you know, some companies trying to repatriate uh, supply chains and all of those things. But at the same time, you have companies realizing that they can now employ talent wherever in the world. So you don't, you no longer need to limit your employment um, of people around where your office. Um, happens to to be located. So, so there's this aspect of diversity that has to do with companies being able to operate internationally. There is a more interesting aspect of diversity, kind of this cumulative, I think, uh, which has to do with identities. Um, so, when we talk about culture, quite often, um, a lot of us tend to think of culture in terms of nationality, possibly also in terms of ethnicity, religion, maybe. So the big, the macro cultures. But actually, there is another element to our individual cultural influences, our cultural identities, that comes from other sources. So our profession, the various organizations in which we've worked in, our uh, education, our family background, our race, um, our gender, all of those elements of the groups that we belong to also become part of our cultural identity and influence us culturally. And when we, we become employees of an organization, we bring all of these different things, these different aspects of our, our cultural identity into work. Uh, you can argue all of these things were there all the time. What has changed recently? I think arguably the thing that has changed recently and has made therefore organizations more diverse is that those aspects of our cultural identities have become much more prominent. So people, individuals have become much more aware, self-aware. So there's more discussion, there's more debate, there's more sort of a group identities um, sort of uh, asserting themselves. There is So there's more self-awareness, there's more social awareness, and organizations themselves are making them much more explicit in the way they're talking about diversity and inclusion and putting in place diversity and inclusion programs. So you have diversity becoming much more of a thing, complexity of culture becoming much more of a thing in the, all these different levels, not just because of the internationalization of organizations. So does that answer your question? Oh my gosh, I knew that this this session with you, Domna, was going to blow my head off and uh, oh, it so I know Dom's itching to ask something <laughs> <laughs> I was just going back to your point about um, uh, English speakers uh, trying to impose their culture more extensively. I think that's that's right, but I think it's, it happens elsewhere as well. I think I've done a lot of work in Scandinavia, and one of the things I found in Scandinavian companies is that they, when they do go global, they do seem to, or have done in the past, expect other people to respond to their morals and to respond to the way they work, and some of them have got their fingers burnt in doing that. Um, so I think it is a, it's an instinct, isn't it, that if we're going to expand, we're going to expand and do things in the way that we know work and the way that we think is right. Um, but I also, uh, having worked with lots of leadership teams who are across global organisations, um, they sometimes come back with the frustration of saying, how do we square 
the need to have consistent values, to have consistent principles, to make sure that the way in which our customers and our clients interact with us is, is similar and of the same standard across the world. How do we square that with the fact that we want to encourage and, and support and nurture local cultures? And, and, and I don't I think that's a hard thing to do. And Dominic, it'd be great to get your take on that, really. How do you balance those two things, the need for consistency with the need to accommodate and support local cultures? I think that that's the $64 million question, really. <laughs> but I mean, that is that is what this idea of intercultural competence or global fitness or whatever you call it is, is about, really. I think for a long time, um, there has been an attempt amongst cross-cultural consultants, uh, intercultural management practitioners that was trying to argue that the way to do it is to adapt to the local culture. So, so you need to understand how the Chinese do business and then you simply have to give in and just do business as the Chinese do. Um, the opposite of that is what you described with the, you know, your Swiss client. So, no, we, we have the right attitudes, we have the right values, so they just have to fit in with what? with the way we do things. And a lot of American companies initially were adopting that model and some are still doing. I think the answer is, is not very um, straightforward, but the only way to do it is to try to, to balance between the two, depending on the context and the purpose of what you're trying to do. So basically, not to try to have one answer fits everything scenarios. Um, so to start with trying to understand and not assume that you can impose. So both of those um, sort of extreme aspects of that continuum are never going to work very effectively. Either trying to completely ignore what is important to you or your values and you know, you're, you're not going to start behaving like you know, some, somebody you are not. There, there, there are if you're talking about leaders, for example, there are issues of authenticity. If as a leader, I suddenly try, I worked with somebody um, a few years ago who was a German leader, very, very um, egalitarian, very successful in working in Western environments. He went to Turkey to manage um, a joint venture. He was told that as a leader there, he couldn't be this egalitarian democratic manager that he was comfortable with. So he had to change his style to being very authoritative and, and you know, just tell people what to do. And, and he imploded simply because that was a step too far. He, did, he just didn't know how to be that autocratic manager. And, and it turns out that the people there, even though they were used to that style of management, they didn't want him to be that kind of manager because it didn't make sense. So, so there is a kind of thing about understanding what is needed in the context and what the, the local culture demands or is used to, but also understanding how far you can go, either as an individual or as an organization, before you lose what is important to you. The values the the principles the things that make you who you are and makes you unique and effective and kind of finding the um, there's a, an american um, academic called andy molinsky who talks about this he calls it the the zone of appropriateness so looking at the zone of appropriateness at that end looking at your comfort zone and finding the the golden middle point 
How far do I need to go before I can make an impact, but without losing what is important to me? And of course, that will be that will depend on what you're trying to achieve, what it is that you're talking about. So if you're talking about, I don't know, bribe, using bribes or whatever, that might become a, a, a serious ethical issue. But if it is about, I don't know, um, having more um, team social events because people really want that kind of thing, then it's not so much of an issue. Yeah? It's interesting we do work with leaders around communication styles, for example, as a way of helping them understand how they can adapt to different individuals, different circumstances. And one of the questions we often get asked is, um, if you're in a different country, are, are they are the styles different? And I, and I think probably not, actually. I think the, the, the mix of styles is going to be the same. It's the, the context in which leaders are using those styles is, is different. I think that's the key thing. So it, it's, it's not down to people being authentic, I think, and doing things in, 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 which is uncomfortable to them, because that will always... Um, come unstuck. But I, I guess one of the things we have to do is make the case to leaders for um, focusing on inter intercultural communication. So, Domino, what, what would you say from your experience, what would be the two or three key things that you would say to make the case to uh, focus on intercultural communication effectiveness? Uh, why is it important in business, I guess? Well, I think we started um, talking about diversity and the fact that organizations are, are more diverse. Uh, now, one of the things that we didn't necessarily talk about, but is implicit in the fact that a lot of organizations are paying a lot of attention to diversity, is the fact that diversity actually pays dividends if you get it right. So, so there's a lot of, of literature out there. There's a lot of research that says that actually diverse teams when they work effectively, actually outperform non-diverse teams. The, and the more complex the problems that you have to solve as an organization, the more complex and indeed uncertain your environment is. And at the moment, that's exactly what a lot of diverse organizations have. The more you need that diversity, because of course that what what that brings with it is different perspectives, different experiences, different points of view, different ideas, different ways of looking at the world. Um, and so, so the diversity is effective. It's really important for an organization's success, but it's only important if people are able to go beyond the potential problems that those differences create. So, so the same kind of difference in perspective, in the way of doing things, in the way of communicating that can bring uh, solutions to ideas and innovation can also bring miscommunication, can also bring exclusion, you know, them and us, fault lines, uh, conflict. So, so in order to get it right and to reap the benefits of diversity, you need people to have that flexibility, that understanding, that ability to work effectively with with others who are not like them. So that's, oh. that, that's the argument. I think that that is so, so interesting. Not least, I mean, I remember when we first set up Work in the Future back in 2016, one of the first commissions we got was to write a white paper on diversity for an American audience. And so we did this work. Pat does this, you know, brilliant with his with his research. And I remember 
And I don't know whether this is still true today, but there was this data point that there are more men called John on boards than there are women. I have seen that. And I can't help but think, to your point, Domna, you know, it's one thing, isn't it? Ticking the box and bringing more gender diversity, cultural diversity, whichever brand, you know, whichever strand of diversity it is that you're, you're focused on. And, and leveling the playing field, it's another thing entirely to adapt your behavior bluntly, because if we're still at this point where we don't have enough women on boards, and have you ever seen that list that came out, and I think it was in 2019, all the reasons that men gave for not appointing more women to boards it was really embarrassing like just well women just don't perform as well or oh no we've got a woman on the board we don't need to do any more I mean just really infantile there is a massive piece of work isn't there right across excuse the um excuse the pun but right across the board right across the piece to educate ourselves in this field Because the point is, when I remember that research that we did, right, all the research that had been done on the benefits of diversity all confirmed the same thing, which is that if you you can embrace diversity within your organisation, you are head and shoulders above your competitors. So it is a no-brainer. It just seems to be too much of a behavioural stretch. Yes, and I think, I mean what a lot of organizations are getting slightly wrong at the moment, they assume that all they need to do is just bring in a lot of different people and the job is done. So so you have diversity, therefore you solved your problems. But but it needs work. I mean, I don't know if you, you, you're aware, um, there's um, a journalist called Matthew Said who's written a book about rebel ideas, who talks about the power of diverse teams to create real value. And, and one of the stories um, he tells, of the story, it's not a story, it's an actual, it's one of the, the episodes he talks about is um, 9-11 and, and how both the CIA and the FBI failed to see obvious clues, obvious pieces of intelligence to understand. So, so it wasn't that the Americans didn't have any uh, intelligence that was telling them what was going to happen. It's just because the lack of diversity in those teams, in the CIA and the FBI, because those organizations recruited from a very narrow pool of people, same universities, you know, effectively white men from a particular, a particular social background who went to the same universities. So there was so much groupthink and so much one way of looking at things that they weren't able to understand what the intelligence was was telling them. Um, They have apparently changed that. And then he contrasts that with the Enigma story, what happened during the Second World War, and how it wasn't just the mathematicians and the computer scientists. It was also the people who were good at solving puzzles and crosswords and the women in the team who were able to see things like you know the fact that the Germans could um, were using their girlfriend's names to set the the codes and actually exactly so so that illustrates how the diversity of thinking and being able to see patterns 
in ways that other people can't see patterns is what kind of creates new new knowledge. I think that's very, very powerful. Well, Domina, there's, you know, as as cats as I knew when we would chat about this, it would be really educational. And I think for me, it's, you know, that point that we need to go beyond just ticking a box to actually really putting that energy into making that work and that understanding and that embracing and all the things that that you've outlined and and going back to the conversation a few minutes earlier as well around you know your leaders and I remember when I did a business degree in the 90s I was given Kenichi Omo's book which was all about what was it uh, think global be local it was all about that was how you were changed and you were training business to sell at a global level it was a massive thing and it just makes me me think back to to some of that those earlier pieces that I looked at but Obviously, we're here as well, you know, our listeners are internal communication professionals and Domina, you and I have spoken about, yes, there is so much cultural complexity right now, you know, let alone the intercultural complexity and the globalisation complexity that, that we live in, but also the identities that we're living in. And actually, I think some of those things is with those identities are being challenged or being being able to be unearthed. We can now unearth our identity in a, in a new way. Um, and with that brings more more complexity on the on the communication um, side of things. So I guess with, with all of that understanding about it, it, that you've just given around actually what is cultural complexity from the actually geographical or where you're from or origin to your identity. Uh, and we're, and our, many of our listeners are trying there to think about how do I connect across cultures? How do I understand cultures? How do I enable dialogue and conversation amongst a group of different cultures what can we do I guess really to think about and maybe there isn't this but it's a long journey to as practitioners think about how are we developing our our channels and our practices to really I guess unite across across borders across languages and across cultural identities well I mean as you said it's very complex so I think one thing you shouldn't do is try to predict and try to put people in boxes and go, okay, I know what the Chinese are like. They're very collectivist. So they just, all they want is just group stuff. <laughs> or I know what the Americans are like, very individualist, very direct. We'll just, you know, just give them lots of direct communication. <laughs> so I think avoid, I mean, yes, absolutely. Read the books, try to understand the traits in the different cultures, different cultural groups, no problem at all. But don't assume that you can then take those things, take them into, turn them into some kind of, you know, this is how to do communication with the Chinese or the Germans or, the, you know, the Koreans or the Australians, and, and then kind of follow that because it's not going to work. Because as we said, people are more than just the nationality. What you do, what you can do, there are certain things. I think one is to, to make sure that individuals are much better at communicating and particularly within your organization, leaders, line managers, people who work in project teams, in groups. So, so develop that, you know, help to develop that self-awareness, that knowledge, that capability. Um, so... You know, so, so create those skills that enables those managers, those line managers, those project teams to work, to communicate more effectively together. Because inevitably, we can't control most of this. 
it's too complex. There are going to be all sorts of levels of messaging, of influencing, of um, helping people to make sense of their environment. Um, and, and a lot of that will happen locally. So the more we can help other people do it, the better. Um, there is also an element that we need to pay attention. I mean, both you, Catherine, and uh, Dominic, you too, you, you talked about language. I think language is particularly important. English is the business language of most of organizations. There is an issue that a lot of organizations that have native English speakers fail to pay attention to. The fact that native English speakers quite often assume that, you know, everybody else just, just has to come, you know, speak the same way we do or will understand everything I say because, of course, they speak good English, don't they? And that's definitely not true. So a lot of the um the, the the jargon the colloquialisms the references the 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 stuff that you take for granted as a um native speaker do not work or or get missed with non-native speakers, however good they might be in speaking the language. And I think creating more awareness around that is very important, for one thing. And, and also really paying attention to how we use language in our official communication. When we send out messages, when we write uh, a piece in the you know, whatever, in a blog about our um, strategy or whatever it is, how we use language to talk about us, to talk about the organization, to talk about different parts of the organization, how inclusive that language is, how jargony that language is, is extremely important. Interestingly, I had two students at the MA this term, this year, who've done, from, from two multinational organizations, who've done research on uh, exclusion and inclusion in their, in their organizations. And one of the things, both of them came up with this thing, how important language is in creating that sense of inclusion and exclusion in, in non-native speakers in their organization. Um, so, so really worth paying attention to how, as professionals, how we use language when we write things and also how our leaders use language when they talk about things in the organization, very important. And I just want to add on to that because I, as you know, guys, I could, I could talk about language all day long, but I read something the other day, which adds another layer of complexity to all of this, which Domna, maybe we should have a chat about offline is um, that, where emojis have become so pervasive in communication um, at large, emoji misinterpretation is causing a massive additional layer of confusion. So I might send you, Dom, a picture of a wink and you might receive that completely differently to how I had intended for you to receive it, but you won't query it because you or I, you know, you're, 
because we think that these things are accepted and we think everyone should know the language of emoji and yet too few of us do. I think that's a fascinating conversation right there. Well, yes, because it's a code, right? It's another it's another communication code in the same way that various paralinguistic things like body language is a communication code. So unless we know this, it goes back to a cultural sharedness. So, so, so if you don't share the references, if you don't use the language in the same way, whether it is an emoji or a, a, a wave or a, you know, or a nod or a, an eye, you know, an eye contact thing or whatever, you can misunderstand that in the same way you can misunderstand somebody being very indirect in their communication because they want to be polite but you completely miss the point because they're not, you know, they're kind of, you know, they go around the houses, <laughs> as they say. Um, so, so, yeah, absolutely. All of those things matter. And we need to, to pay attention to how we use any kind of code of communication. But, but I mean, the other, because you asked about channels, I think, and I, I talked about language and I talked about um so skills or communication skills. But then when it comes to channels, again, because you have complexity and you know, we know as practitioners the difference between rich channels, lean channels, and we know so we know with rich channels that rely a lot of face-to-face, you have the opportunity to share more, more information. And that information allows you to interpret the message more effectively or to create better shared meaning. So where you have that complexity of you know people coming into the uh, com- the interaction with different potentially different points of view, different frames of reference, then the richer the channel, the better your chance of communicating effectively. So that's something that you need to think about as a communicator when you're selecting your channels. Now there is a problem there that you can't we can't have face to face for everything. So, so you need to be introducing more conversations, more rich channels, but what do you do when you can't do it? So the question then becomes, you have to understand what's the best thing to do in the particular situation for the particular purpose. And I would say, ask for advice, use local insight. So you can't expect to get anything right from the center without understanding the receiver's point of view, the receiver's context. So create much more of a partnership with local communicators, practitioners, informants, whatever it is you're going to have in place. So, so use those partnerships those to create insights, to test things, to understand. We need to do much more of that as practitioners, I think, to get it right. Domino, we have to come into land, but I think just to reiterate, reinforce that point you just made, it seems to be a common theme coming out of many of these episodes, looking at the future of internal comms, that a key role for internal communicators is fostering conversation, is establishing dialogue through different channels. And I think you've just reinforced that. And it strikes me that lots of misunderstandings around culture are down to the fact that people make assumptions, they don't consult, they don't ask questions, they don't get involved in conversation. So amongst the many things that we've taken from this, I think one is that importance of just checking in. How are people feeling? What are they making of things? What do they understand by stuff? Uh, and having that conversation also shows good intent, I think, as well. But I think 
we need to come into land. Thank you very much, Domna, uh, for a great conversation, which has been illuminating and fascinating. Thank you. Thank you all, Thank too. Really enjoyed Thanks, it. Domna. Thanks so much for listening today. This episode has been brought to you by the Institute of Internal Communication and was hosted by myself, Jen Sproul, Kat Barnard, and Dominic Walters. This episode was produced by Jessica Williams and Shabi Tulu And if you've enjoyed this episode today, we'd be enormously grateful if you could rate, review, and subscribe on the channel you choose to tune in. It really helps others to know that we're here. We'll tune in and hopefully see you next time.